0: Oh my I have enjoyed that yes boy be oh my I have enjoyed that yes boy be oh my I have enjoyed that yes boy be oh my I have enjoyed that be oh, oh my I have enjoyed that yes
1: boy be oh my I have enjoyed that Seneca yes took our tour and thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of in the sheds on Cove with Kingie where for today's show we are joined by one of the New Zealand Rugby Union's regional coaching development managers Wayne Masters. Now on the show we talk about how his experience in the strength and conditioning industry got him into coaching and what ultimately led to him living over in the UAE for over 10 years as a player coach with the rugby unions on that side of the world before ultimately him returning back to New Zealand and working down in Canterbury and him explaining what sort of goes into their scouting and development process and why they've been so successful. So without any further delay I will let you guys get to know Mr Masters enjoy I guess that like, uh, before we sort of crack into the sort of mahi you're yeah. getting up to and your coaching developments bro why don't you just take us back to you as a young fellow where'd you grow up and how'd you get interested in rugby
0: yeah sure I mean like all of us back and particularly back in, in my era uh, which is going back a little bit everyone played rugby well, it seemed everyone played rugby there wasn't much other choice out there so I started playing for my local club down in down in Westport in the, the Mighty Buller Started playing when I was sort of five or six, I think. Same club that my dad played for and my grandfather and uncles and bits and pieces. So, yeah, just followed the, the you know, the family line that you all did. Um, I played for White Star, the Mighty White Star, which is the Marist club down in Westport. And then, um, yeah, played all the way through with them. And we didn't have the first 15 program as such. So, you played traditionals for your, for your school, for your college. But then you'd, on a Saturday, you'd still play club rugby. So, I had that club connection. All the way through to seniors, and then, um, like a lot of us, travelled away, um, travelled away to play more rugby later on and played club rugby um, around different traps in Canterbury and went to Lincoln Lincoln College back then, Lincoln University on a on a rugby scholarship, and played rugby over there and then was up in Wellington, running around playing some club stuff and then went overseas and played a bit over and over in Aussie and then finished up, you know, not too long ago. Well as an older adult um, over in the Middle East.
1: And so what sort of mahi were you getting up to uh, as well as playing rugby when you did school?
0: Yeah, when I left school, as I said, I went to Lincoln College and um, had a couple of years there. Um, studies are incomplete, I think the term that it says on my on my CV. Um, and uh, then I went overseas and, and, uh, and played club rugby over on the Gold Coast, just working for the local rugby club there doing um you know sort of laboring jobs and that for people within the rugby club and then um got an opportunity to go to the united states and played so mid-80s headed over to the states and played in um in south texas and san antonio in a in a semi-professional club competition that they were trying to put together back in those days albeit back in the amateur era era um so you'd get somewhere to stay and get a job and um, they could have so many international players uh, or foreign players in each team and had a season or two over there, which was really good. And then came back, decided I did need to start to work and just did sort of normal labouring roles like lots of us did. And then um, decided I went, it's time to go back to school. So I went back to, to the Polytech here in Wellington. I ran an upper hut at CIT and did two years there doing exercise science. And from there, was involved in the, in the health and fitness industry for, for sort of 10 or 15 years. Right. Um, before drifting back into sort of into rugby in a and a in a professional um, nature with coaching and, and development. You talk
1: about having that exercise and science background. Is that what sort of got your foot in the door with coaching,
0: or? Yeah, no. It actually, it, it did actually. Uh, Jordan, and I, um, you know, you'd get called in to do roles after, particularly after I finished playing club rugby in New Zealand. You'd get you know asked to go in and help out with former teammates and coaches and help out with club rugby and schools rugby doing the, the S&C side of things, when, when rugby S&C was just in its infancy, really. And so I got involved in that, and that sort of got me back involved in, in, in rugby. Um, and then sort of realised it was only really a short, you know, a couple of dotted lines between, you know, being in a S&C role and, and being in a coaching role. It's about developing athletes, you know, developing players and, instead of it being sort of fitness, physical fitness, it's you know it's around developing their skills, technical, tactical. So, so yeah, just drifted more into the coaching side of things. So, yeah, that was a, the S&C was sort of a gateway to coaching.
1: And you talk about being around sort of as, when sort of the strength and conditioning side of football, there was more of an importance placed on it, I'm guessing sort of at the turn of the professional era. Why do you think that, you know, I'm guessing that, people who had been working in your industry you know, for, I, don't know, I guess, the last century would have thought that that sort of stuff was applicable to to athletes. Why do you think there wasn't as much of an importance placed on it prior to the turn of the professional era? Was it a money thing? Or
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think some of it was resources that were available. Some of it was there was lots of people whose passion may have been fitness. But there wasn't a lot of, you know, structured study that you could do outside of doing a PE degree um, down in Otago back in those days. So there wasn't a lot of people with qualifications to do with fitness or to do with S and C, and so there wasn't that resource that was uh, was around. And then I think maybe as the game evolved and and people wanted to get an edge, you know, that was a way to get an edge by having fitter, you know, bigger, stronger players with more, you know. More energy left in the tank over eighty minutes than, than other teams, so it just became a necessity after that. But but um, yes, certainly the the professional era helped us th- you know begin to think about other areas like S and C, like um, mental skills, um, and and those sorts of things.
1: Okay, so then you talk about having a decent network, having spent quite a bit of time in rugby, you know, all over the world. Where did your first coaching stint pop up?
0: Yeah, first, first um, rugby coaching stint was in Abu Dhabi actually, um, oh, okay. in the in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And initially started as as it often does, as, you know, in a player coach role. You're sort of too old to go to go the 80 minutes, so you want to do something else to fill in your time. So you finish up well. There's no no coaches putting their hand up, so you finish up dabbling and doing a bit of coaching. So I started off in a in a player coach role with the um, with the Abu Dhabi um, rugby club. And then I was approached to see if I'd be interested in coaching a, a representative team then what was then the Arabian Gulf, which was a conglomerate of different national rugby unions, um, the likes of the UAE, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, Amman, uh, Bahrain, and Kuwait, um, which were separate countries. But from a rugby point of view, they'd come together and play as the Arabian Gulf, sort of the West Indies of rugby, really different countries that came together. Um, and they had quite a strong representative programme. They played within in the Asian um, region and played in different sevens and fifteens competitions or, or one-off series. Um, and I got involved then actually um, coaching their women's sevens team and had an opportunity to coach the men's team or the women's, and I thought the women's team would be uh, more challenging. So, um, So myself and a friend as a manager, because you need a good manager, particularly in sevens, um, grabbed a good manager and um, and started coaching women's sevens. So that was my first real real coaching, sort of coming out of play coaching with Club Fifteens.
1: I mean, that's a pretty bizarre place to end up, particularly for someone from New Zealand. I mean, like, what prompted you to, you know, travel to that part of the world in particular? Was it just, yeah, was, it, was it really the opportunity? It was too big to turn down? Or
0: Yeah, I was involved with, I was basically full-time doing S&C and rugby in, in New Zealand and was involved with different clubs here in Wellington and helping out around the, around the, rep, um, the rep scene in, in Wellington and doing lots of individual S&C work with, with different players within professional rugby and wanted a bit of a break and a, and a friend um, who was over in the Middle East setting up um, some gyms, um, health and fitness was just taking off over there. Um, and wanted someone to go and 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 help just set up a gym over the off season here in the summer, New Zealand summer, UAE winter. And so it was initially a three a three month gig just to go over and help set up the gym and and um, and do some staff training and and launch the opening of this gym and then come back home in, in time for the for the winter season. And three months turned into sort of twelve years. Um, so that's how I, how I got into that, and initially started, my, my association with the rugby over there actually came from SNC, from going out to one of the clubs and, and we were trying to promote that that health club and, and we invited them in to do some, um, we put on some rugby circuits for them to get them to get a taste of the gym and, and that's how that relationship started up there and then from there they got a bit short one one weekend and went and run around out in the. Out in the backs there for half a game on some sand pitch somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And then that's how I got sort of you know, drawn drawn into rugby and drawn into staying over there a little bit longer than three months.
1: And that's a that's a pretty long stint, but if we sort of take it back to I guess the start of it all in terms of you picking up all these sort of opportunities as they came coming, what was it like working for what would you What would it be a tier three? Uh, international Rugby Union like at that time or is there, were there even tears
0: yeah, in it? Like... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even know if there was tears back then, but whatever the last one would have been, that would have been us. <laughs> um, no, it was real development sort of, you know, rugby you'd, you'd play and get to play in World Cup qualifiers which was great and got to run out against Japan a couple of times and and um, and coached a couple of um, national teams playing against Japan in 7s and in World Cup 15s qualifiers so we're obviously well down the the rankings, um, so it was a real um, yeah, it's real development sort of level. And I wouldn't, certainly wouldn't call it high performance. It'd be performance at best um, back in those days anyway. But um, yeah, you still got to go to your Dubai sevens, uh, you know, compete in the Dubai sevens in front of 50,000 people, and go to the Hong Kong sevens and the George sevens back in those days in in South Africa and and other different sort of. Um, other different sevens competitions and play at your level, as you say, would have been a tier three um, level and international 15s against the, the, you know, the Chinas and the the Hong Kongs and the Koreas and the the Japans of, of that era. And
1: I think in New Zealand, you know, people are very much sort of within our own bubble and they don't probably understand the challenges that smaller unions go through. I mean, we're sort of seeing recently the the likes of like your Samoas and your tongas and your fiji talk about the financial problems that they have and the inability to probably pay their players what they're worth um accommodation travel like you talk about going to all the sevens tournaments was money a problem for that union or the union that you worked for at the time or can you sort of talk about those sorts of things having come from a new Zealand setup
0: yeah i mean if anything we were we were really lucky you know in a I was working over in an oil-rich, pre-2007 um, recession for for a good part of it, and so we we're actually really well resourced. We, for instance, when I was working in in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, you know, it was they, Dubai hosted the, you know, the Dubai section of the of the World um, Rugby's um, Seven Series at that stage. I think it was called, and so we had some really good sponsors, as you could imagine, with the likes of Emirates and and BP and and Rolls Royce <laughs> companies like that, so resources wasn't wasn't an issue. It was more about sort of being able to build our our player base and our and our skill bases as as you know players. But we're actually really well resourced and really lucky. And also, you know, Asia. While Asia is a big a big area geographically, it's it's relatively easy to sort of jump on a plane and you know and go and play games and you know in 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 Japan or in Southeast Asia and and Thailand and indonesia and places which we don't associate with rugby but all in their own right have sort of little thriving rugby communities and and thriving national programs albeit as you as you say sort of at those development or tier three level so we had some advantages in regards to to resources and and access to to go and play play overseas you know tyranny of distance with new zealand we're a a long way away um, from anywhere and obviously it can be very expensive to travel whereas we had the luxury of being able to jump on a plane and, and travel two or three hours to get to another country, and that would be, you know, relatively inexpensive. Then you, you mentioned before about
1: how using the term high performance was probably overselling it, but it was more so performance. Again, you know, rugby sort of being, it's almost like a religion in New Zealand, and for you, obviously, going over to that part of the world and trying to build a rugby and build a player base, like, how do you even go about doing that? Is it more about going to the schools? Are you looking at you know middle-aged men who have nothing better to do like how does that all work
0: <laughs> yeah it really depends on the on the environment you're, you're in and, and certainly in the uae rugby was already and has been for sort of 50 60 years sort of firmly established within the expatriate community through the likes of the oil industry and and military and, and areas like that and also through expatriate schools, um, particularly you know English schools that have opened up um, in the UAE or in the Middle East, and so rugby was was often a, a, a sport that would be played within schools. So it was about building you know building numbers within schools, and then um, getting into schools that didn't that didn't have rugby, and, and putting in programs in there obviously to build that that grout grassroots base. Um, but in some other countries where I worked, I had a couple of years working. Um, in Iran and in Iran it was there's some rugby in schools now, which is great, but it was more about just building. um it was building clubs, so building rugby within clubs and it was about building probably you know, adult adult rugby men's and women's um, uh, adult rugby, and then from there going down and, and getting rugby into school. so just depended on the on the environment. Yeah. And you mentioned before, as well how you as someone who likes the challenge or likes a
1: challenge. And you stay um, over in the UAE you know for, for over a decade what was it that kept you over there for such a long time and did you ever get homesick during that time
0: yeah I, I did I there was there was some obvious advantage you know for being in there which are probably less a, a, about a passion for the game but that was really important you know it's you know it's tax-free over there so you're not paying you're not paying taxes It, it can be a pretty good Lifestyle, you know, the the weather's pretty good. Sure. Um, you're not you not walking around with your red bands on and and your swan dry at trainings on a cold Thursday night. But also, yes, I mean, it's I'm involved at the grassroots of rugby now, and and I think I've always enjoyed that, you know, that that um, that challenge of of building rugby from the ground up and and getting people to know about the game and learning the basics of the game and then getting a passion for the game and then and getting better. So, um, yeah, certainly it was good to be. And, and also an opportunity to work in rugby. There's there's not a lot of opportunities to work in rugby and, and I kind of found my niche over there and, and really enjoyed it. So, yeah, passion for the game alongside, you know, some lifestyle choices and, and some financial advantages of being over there.
1: And obviously tied in with being in one spot for a long time, you would have overseen a bit of development, I'm guessing. What, what changed from
0: the start of your journey to the end of it? Yeah, I think just a more of an awareness. Uh, I think the IRB, you know, the World Rugby now, did a, did a lot of really good work and continue to, to, to do so, I'm sure, in, in Asia and developing rugby and making people aware of rugby. So just that being more, having a, a higher profile um, across Asia. Like in the part of Asia where I was. And also too, I was lucky to be involved uh, in uh, in rugby in Dubai, when <clears throat> when the Arabian Gulf Rugby Union uh, dissolved, uh, and and each country had its own independent rugby union. Um, after the game, um, when sevens became Olympic sport, then it wasn't possible that you could have a, a a national team that was made up of different countries, and so the Arabian Gulf. Was disbanded and, and each country became its own its own entity as a rugby union, and I was lucky to get a job with the UAE Rugby Federation, which was funded and and was a, a government run federation. And then the emphasis came became uh, more on growing the game within the in, within the indigenous population, and that was a, that was a cool thing to be involved with, where it wasn't a sport for for expatriates, you know, namely. British, French, South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders. Um, it became a sport for for everyone, and, and particularly for the indigenous population. So we were in we are in local schools, Emirati schools, and uh, for boys and for girls, and and that was really cool to sort of see that the game really changed from a a sport for a few to a sport that was um, exposed to many. I mean, what were the sports, especially in schools, that you were likely
1: competing with? I guess was it just Football, or were there other sports that they play over there that maybe we're not culturally aware
0: of? Yeah, football was the was the big one, absolutely huge, you know, huge um, following over there. Um, So football was was a was sort of a main sport people were familiar with and were involved in, and and within like the UAE, we tried to position ourselves as an as an alternative to that. Like many countries who have developed very quickly, um, there's some challenges over there with the local population, with with their health comes health outcomes, and trying to improve health outcomes. So, you know, um, a lot of the, the population, the 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 younger population, were, were getting bigger and maybe not so healthy, and things like diabetes was becoming an issue, or has, has become an issue, and and um, on obesity and and other things like that. So. We were offered rugby as an alternative, that that you know maybe the old adage that rugby's a game for all. Um, so we positioned ourselves that rugby could be an alternative to those that didn't want to play, run around on a on a football field, or didn't feel that they that they could do that as well, but that they had a place on a rugby field, you know, um, yeah. and could wear different numbers on their back, and and um, and so that's how we positioned ourselves.
1: Interesting, and so you spend that
0: gig, or you
1: spend that time. Uh, with the gig of that union in the UAE, and then you decided to come home in 2014, and was it a matter of you being approached by the Canterbury Rugby Union to come home, or was it sort of like you put the feelers out? Or
0: yeah, I decided it was it was time to to um, to come home. I had a young family at, at that stage, and thought there might be you know thought it was time to sort of to come home and and uh, maybe put my roots back down here in New Zealand and. Like a lot of us, when you're overseas, you're a long way from Farno, from and I was conscious of, of my parents getting older, and so I decided it was time to at least consider coming back to New Zealand, and, and so I decided to come home, and so I, I put the feelers out, and was I was really lucky I got an opportunity straight off the bat in Canterbury, and so I took that opportunity, so yeah, I was really lucky. And what was that role? Uh, that was working for the Canterbury Rugby Union, um, and Crusaders Rugby as a, as a coach educator.
1: I'm guessing for those of us that have, wouldn't have an idea of that role, is that you just simply, you are the ones, are you educating the likes of Scott Robertson, or is it more so at a community level?
0: <laughs> you know, more at, a, more at a community level. So we'd work from from sort of senior club coaches on down and, and also our representative programme, representative coaches you know, from our under-19s and down. And so that was a big jump going from, you know, working in the backwaters and the minor leagues uh, over in Asia and then turning up for, you know, work day one at, um, at Canterbury and Crusaders rugby, that's for sure. Yeah.
1: Now, I've had a few of my mates go through the Canterbury system. Um, similar mm-hmm. to you, they went to Lincoln on rugby scholarships. Mm-hmm. And for some of them, it was a good experience and some of them maybe got a little bit homesick. But what is it about Canterbury and... I guess, in your opinion, that makes them the well-oiled machine that they are and their ability to just go out and find diamonds in the rough and just consistently perform at a high level. Because every union will tell you that they train hard and they do this and you can bring X coach in, but for whatever reason, there just seems to be this consistency with Canterbury that probably hasn't been around since the lights of Auckland in the 80s. So, you know, what is it that makes them tickle? What's in the water down there?
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say something in the something in the water. Um look I think, and, and obviously now I work for New Zealand rugby, so you know, try to have an impartial hat on for most of the time. I think you know what Canabury we do well is there's a real demand for excellence across the different levels whether uh, um, whether you're coaching, whether you're an administrator, um whether you're a player, whether you're a volunteer, there's a there's a real expectation of, of excellence and particularly within the organisation at Canterbury and the Crusaders from from my experience was there yeah, there was just this um, there was an expectation that, that everything you did, you know, you, you did to the best of your ability. And so, you know, part of their strategic plan is is to have the best people and not uh not certainly my own trauma because I think I got lucky, but um, you know, having the best people in the in the role. So there's some high quality people there, and there's an expectation that 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 you'll do your best. I think they, the reputation and the you know and the size of the trophy cabinet, also attracts you know attracts uh, good athletes. So the fact that they've done so well is sort of self perpetuating. Is that it's an organisation that people want to want to be part of, again, whether they're a player, whether they're a coach. And yeah, they're, they're very canny at their, at their, um, at their talent spotting. Um, they're very clear on the sort of athletes that they want to have involved, and they look for athletes that, that fit that mould. They're very good at looking outside of just a person's ability on the field, you know, looking at what, what qualities, what traits, what strengths they bring off the field. In regards to their resilience, um, their ability to work within a team, um, their ability to sacrifice and, and those sorts of things. And they hold things like coaching very importantly, hence the reason that there was we had a, a team of three of us that was full-time in coach development, which was uh, at that time, and probably still now, is quite unheard of compared to other PUs in New Zealand. They have people who are just solely purposed to look after coach development. So. You know the old adage that you know good coaches you know builds good players and, and good good players builds a better game. So I think those are some of the things that that they do really well.
1: I mean, has there been consistent pieces even within that union that have kept it that dominant? Like, is it still the same? I don't know. Is it, is it still the same old heads that have been there since you know the late 90s, or is it they have a? Because I've heard of businesses actually going into the Crusader setup and the Canterbury Rugby Union and trying to base their own models off the Canterbury business model or the rugby business mm-hmm. model? So, I mean, are there sort of people behind the scenes? I mean, you don't have the name names that sort of put everything into motion?
0: I think they're really good at, at succession planning. They're very good at looking, um, you know, whether it be doing, you know, depth charts putting together depth charts of, of, of talent within players, you know, who's the you know, who, who's our next tied head off the ranks, you know, where how are we for, you know, for different playing positions and is that an area down in our age groups that we need to put more focus on? Um, they're very good at doing that across the board with management, with coaches, you know, who are our, our developing coaches, who are our elite coaches, who are our managers. So they're very good at doing that. And I think there's a real legacy there. And so while there might not be this carbul of, of people that have been running the you know running rugby there for 50 years there's there's this legacy of people that come through and then there's good succession planning that you know that there's always always a good stock of people coming through to keep that legacy going. Um, and so again there's that expectation that you need to be as good as that last Crusaders manager or that last you know, club committee person or whatever. But there's certainly, like any any PU, there's some stalwarts there that, that keep rugby ticking over and who are familiar faces. But I think any PU's got got that provincial union I'm talking about. I think any provincial union's got that. But I think I think Canterbury are very good at planning for the future.
1: And we both mentioned, I mean, you're an alumni of uh, Lincoln. And I know Lincoln plays a very good part in attracting a lot of the players down how closely or how much credit would you give to the likes of Lincoln in having those rugby scholarships available into the success of the Canterbury Union? Do you think that had Lincoln not had all these opportunities for aspiring professional rugby players, that Canterbury would have had the success that they've had over such a long period of time?
0: I think Canterbury certainly, you know, perhaps got a march on the the rest of the country with what they did with... Um, with with Lincoln and there's there's those that that um, are big supporters of of um, of the place that Lincoln has and development of players in Canterbury, and there's those that probably aren't as supportive of it. But what I would say is that it certainly has helped being able to attract you know players from not only the region to stay within region, but for those from, and, and as you say, I'm sure you know a lot of them individually, um, but for players, promising players from from outside of of the Canterbury region to come to to come to Canterbury because they, you know, they there's the opportunity to be at to be at Lincoln. So um, I think certainly they were probably ahead of ahead of the game in getting getting that sort of relationship with Lincoln. Going and you'd have to say by the sorts of people who have come, the, the names that you could name, you know, the dominant birds and co that you could name that have come through that program, that it's, it has to have been good for for Canterbury.
1: And so you spend a bit of time back down in Christchurch at Stomping Ground, and then you get a job with the NZRU. And what sort of prompted that was that the opportunity popped up and you got shoulder tapped, or did you apply for it and wanted to change the scenery?
0: Yeah, look, there was a there was a clear process. Um, for it, so I, you know, there was a job that was that I became aware of, and then it was it was advertised, and New Zealand rugby have really clear sort of recruitment policies and processes, so I followed that through. But yeah, it seemed to be the next um, logical um, step for me to go from doing what I was doing at a provincial level, or albeit with a with a you know a world class organisation, to taking it up a another level and and doing it at a national level with New Zealand rugby. So. It was just, a, yeah, it was an opportunity that, that I couldn't resist really. So I put my name in the hat with, with a number of others, I'm sure, and, and again, got, got lucky and got the nod. Nice, nice. And so you're pretty much now
1: just doing what you were doing in Canterbury just on a, on a larger scale and you have more stakeholders?
0: Yeah, so I'm a coach development manager for New Zealand Rugby and I, I look after um, our central region. Um, which is our Crusaders catchment area, so there's eight eight PUs from Wellington up to the east coast and across to Honganui. and so I support those PUs in um, in coach development and more and more in a in a game development in, in a in a game development uh, aspect, um, as well as being part of a team, a game development team and a coach development team at New Zealand Rugby that helps strategise and and develop our our sort of national national um, coach development framework and game development framework so you're less time on the grass and um, more time sitting in meetings and strategizing and and planning and, and out supporting our, our pus our provincial unions
1: for you as someone who's had a very hands-on approach initially especially working in the snc sector and then you know working over in the uae with players firsthand and now you're actually almost two step back, two steps back with having to look over coaches who are then having the first hand experience with players. What do you prefer?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really insightful question, Jordan, and I think most of us, you know, never really lose that, that coaching bug and so any opportunity you get to roll your sleeves up and, and, and get out on the grass you, you do. So I do miss that side of it. And I think, you know, as we say, even within development, within rugby development offices, we often sort of joke, sort of tongue in cheek, but with a little bit of seriousness. That that most development um, people within rugby development are, are rugby development people that they're in, in coach coaches' bodies. Um, so we all we all like coaching. We all like being out on the grass and being close to the action. And so that's been probably the toughest thing, is is being that step or two removed from that. And like anyone, like players, like how you still think you can play when you're in your 40s. You still think you can coach um, when you're in your 50s or 60s, and and any opportunity to to get down on the grass, you do. But um, yeah, that's that's been tough. Um, that transition from from being on the grass to being in the you know in the meeting or strategic planning room.
1: For someone who started off initially as a coach, and then like you said, you move into a space where you're coaching coaches. How fine is the line between someone like you and someone who's coaching um, a provincial premier team? Like, is it like are you guys pretty much on the same wavelength in terms of knowledge and you just took two different routes? Or is it just a matter of opportunities popping up? Because like I'd say that someone like you would have all this coaching expertise because you're having to oversee different coaches. And so can you you know, if possible, can you move from where you are into back into coaching or is that two, sort of two different things?
0: I think when you're uh, in a role like mine, um, even when I was at a PU level with Canterbury, it's less about the, you know, the technical, tactical, less about the X's and O's and it's more about coaching processes. So planning, communicating with your players, creating culture. You know what does a great environment look like? How do you give feedback? Effective feedback. Um, how do you do, deal with with conflict? You know how do you error correct? It's it's more about those things than it is the technical and tactical. And there's a lot of the the x's and o's part of the game that as you move away from the game, like I have, from move away from the grass that I that that I'm less um, less familiar with, and you're not on that cutting edge of, you know. Of, you know, of coaching and, and analysing your team's effectiveness at playing, you know, one three three one or two four two or or whatever it might be, um, and you're more about looking at how a coach, you know, relates to his players, you know, relates to his 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 um, backroom staff, and so it would be a tough uh, transition to go back to go back to uh, feeling comfortable with that technical technical side of things. Um, at At a higher level, anyway, at a performance or high performance level, because you're looking more of more of the big picture stuff in the in the role that I do now.
1: Which one, for you personally, do you
0: think you would
1: place a higher importance on the X's and nodes or the player relatability?
0: Some good questions here, Jordy. I, I think the the bigger picture stuff. I think you can you can upskill yourself. You know, we often say. You know, if you want to know about technical technical stuff, then then you know, they go onto YouTube and and type in you know run run plus catch plus pass, um, and you'll get any number of of ideas for that. But it's your ability to be able to communicate that to your to your players to be able to know when to when to introduce a certain activity and when to progress it, or how do you explain it to your players? How do you coach it? How do you give feedback about about players when they're when they're doing a skill activity? So I would say it's the the coach process stuff is is, is stuff that that um, that I think you can get the best. You know that that's the magic. It's the that's the thread that, that puts it all together. And the technical tactical stuff, while very is obviously very very important, I think that's the more learnable stuff. You know everybody talks about you know a name that you often hear when when players high performance players in new zealand talk about one of their favorite coaches a a name that often comes up you know is wayne smith and i'm sure his, his you know technical technical knowledge would be would be bar none um but it'll be also equally as important if not more it'll be the way that he he interacts with his players and communicates with them and and can, you know, see what players are doing well and what they can do better and, and can build trust and, and those sorts of things. I think that's the that's the key. All right.
1: Now, I know that we're sort of caught up in a weird time with this whole COVID-19 thing and that for guys like you who have a job and overseeing this sort of stuff is probably a tricky time, but what's the plan for you moving forward? Are you happy with your current role? Or are you, you know, because you're no stranger to travelling overseas, uh, you know,
0: any plans like that, or no? Yeah, look, I just say it's an interesting time, and and um, you know, and, and and the rugby landscape that that we that we get to go outside and run around and and pass the ball around is going to be different to it than it was um, you know a month ago or six weeks ago. So yeah, look, I, I really love what I what I do, and I and I hope I get to, I hope I still get to do it, you know, over the coming months and and years, but time time will tell at the moment. It's yeah, it's about keeping connected with our rugby community or via albeit remotely and putting together strategy so we can hit the hit the ground running when when we, you know, as we descend down the, the alert levels to the levels two and one so we can get out and, and, and play this game we love. So it's about being in a position to be able to, to be able to hit the ground running and be able to do that. And it's also a great opportunity moving forward to you know, to be innovative and to recalibrate what rugby you know was six weeks ago and what it can be moving forward in the future because without a doubt it's changed and probably changed forever but that that also brings opportunity so I'd like to stay in the sort of work that I'm doing um, time will tell if it's that's, that's viable in the in the in the immediate future but just focusing on what we can do to get playing rugby again and then you know Looking at what opportunities there are moving forward. Well, hopefully
1: everybody does their part in taking these and taking this lockdown seriously. Like you said, you, know, you stay where you want to be, and I can get back to playing rugby as well. But thank you very much for taking some time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Um, it's given me a lot of great insight, especially from the coaching perspective, albeit you know from such a, a buzzy place over in the UAE. But again, I hope well, you know for your sake that we get a product back on the field soon so you can get back to doing what you want to do and i guess above all just stay safe and healthy man thank you
0: yeah my pleasure um jordan same to you and and all the rugby whanau out there yeah, stay safe and, and hopefully we'll be all together on the sidelines soon
1: cure it wayne appreciate
0: it kia ora.